What's the new G7 Infrastructure Investment Partnership about? And how much clean energy will China likely install this year? Welcome to the Climate Recap from the Becosphere Climate Corner, your go-to place for international and U.S.-based climate news. I'm Becky Hogue, a science writer. Today is Tuesday, June 28th. Let's jump right into the news you need to start your day. Let's start with some extreme weather events. Japan urged people in Tokyo to turn off any unnecessary lights for three hours yesterday afternoon to conserve energy as a heat wave sweeps through the country. This way, the country was able to continue using air conditioning without a power outage. Central Tokyo hit 95 degrees Fahrenheit or 35 degrees Celsius this weekend, while the city of Isisaki saw a record of 104.4 degrees Fahrenheit or 40.2 degrees Celsius. Energy has been a bit tight since the earthquake in March forced the temporary shutdown of a few nuclear plants. Meanwhile, China saw another heat record, this time in the Hebei province. The city Letzing hit 111.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 44.2 degrees Celsius, according to the extreme temperatures around the world account on Twitter. I totally missed this next news story, which takes place in the U.S. Two weeks ago, the commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation told states in the Colorado River Basin that they have 60 days to create an emergency plan to stop using between 2 and 4 million acre foot of water in the next year, or the agency will use an emergency authority to make cuts itself. She said hotter temperatures driven by climate change have led to less water reaching Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the two largest reservoirs in the U.S., The Colorado River system supplies water and hydropower to California, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Nevada, New Mexico, Wyoming, 30 reservations if they have access to rights and equipment, and Mexico if any water makes it down there by that point. Projections show that Lake Powell will have too low a water level to supply hydropower by 2024. I first heard this story from John Oliver's most recent video on the depleting water supply in the western U.S., which I highly recommend that video. Time for some climate victories. The five-day United Nations Ocean Conference just began in Lisbon, Portugal to talk about overfishing, plastic pollution, shipping, deep-sea mining, the blue carbon economy, climate change, ocean acidification, and marine conservation, among other things. The event is hosting representatives from nearly 100 nations and is being co-run by Portugal and Kenya. It was postponed due to COVID previously. Meanwhile, the G7 countries announced that they will provide money for developing countries in the Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. Was climate change the motivating factor? No, it was competition with China. The G7 countries want to provide an alternative option to emerging economies than the Belt and Road Initiative, which China has put an estimated $1 trillion into since it began about a decade ago. But the G7 initiative still has a clean energy focus. The G7 money will go towards clean energy initiatives, information and communications technology, health systems, and gender equality. Those last two being very ironic considering a certain Supreme Court decision that was made around that time. Anyways, the G7 countries announced it would provide $600 billion towards this initiative over the next five years. The countries hope to supplement the money with private investments. U.S. President Biden said the countries have a dozen projects in the categories I mentioned going on around the world now. So far, we know that $2 billion will go to a solar project in Angola. It'll include solar mini-grids, home power kits, and solar-to-power telecommunications. Over to Australia, 50 to 60 climate activists led by Blockade Australia marched down Hyde Park in Sydney yesterday morning. A car drove through the protest, hitting some activists. I didn't see any injuries, though. 
And the deputy premier of New South Wales responded to the protest by telling climate activists to, quote, get real jobs. Ten activists were arrested, now facing two years in jail and a $22,000 fine. In other news, China continues to cement itself as a leader in clean energy generation. It looks like it will add a record 156 gigawatts of wind and solar to the grid this year, according to the China Renewable Energy Engineering Institute, a think tank that supports the country's National Energy Administration. Over two-thirds of this energy addition comes in the form of solar. This record would be a 25% increase from the previous record set in 2021. Only China and the U.S. even have 165 gigawatts of solar and wind installed currently, with the U.S. having a little over 200 gigawatts installed and China having well over 600 gigawatts installed. Now it's a matter of making sure the grid can take all of this new energy supply, something China is currently struggling with. China also just added its largest nuclear plant to the grid. The Hongyehe plant, which began being built in 2007, has an installed capacity of over 6.7 gigawatts. Now on to some climate fails. Another biodiversity conference has failed to yield any deal to halt nature loss. About 1,000 negotiators from 150 countries in Nairobi on Sunday to draft an ambitious global agreement to reduce biodiversity loss ahead of the official UN biodiversity talks in Montreal, Canada in December, called COP15. This goal did not pan out. Only two of the 20 goals were agreed on. Those two goals involved the sharing of knowledge and technology and promoting urban green spaces. Some environmental groups think these meetings are getting less ambitious. The group has agreed to hold a fifth meeting to make more progress ahead of COP15. Maintaining biodiversity relates to the climate crisis because it is the net that's holding humanity up. We simply can't solve the climate crisis if biodiversity collapses. In India, the country's top car maker, Maruti Suzuki India, which sells every other car on Indian roads, announced it will focus on hybrids instead of electric vehicles to clean up its fleet. It argued that biofuels and natural gas are a better way to go because 75% of India's energy comes from coal. But gas prices are at an all-time high, and this argument that natural gas is a good transition fuel doesn't match with several studies that have found switching straight from coal to clean energy is the way to go. Just because the energy grid is dirty doesn't negate the emissions and air pollution reduced by decreasing fuel use from the transportation sector. Electrification everywhere possible makes it more straightforward to decarbonize. But that's their goal is hybrid. Meanwhile, Russia shows that it can multitask being shitty. The government has quietly slashed environmental protections back home. Last month, it allowed companies to build pipelines and highways through natural reserves without any environmental reviews, which represents 12.5% of the country's land. Keep in mind what I said yesterday about Russia being known for its fossil fuel infrastructure leaking, by the way. In fact, all environmental reviews for businesses have been frozen for two years. The National Resources and Environment Ministry pushed back the timeline for the Clean Air Project implementation by two years. The Clean Air Project is a government initiative to control harmful pollution emissions in Russia's most polluted cities. The government also made it so car manufacturers no longer have to follow EU pollution control standards. Officials insist that all these changes are needed to maintain the economy, which will likely retract by 10% this year due to the war. Greenpeace says overall 42 out of 43 of the country's recent initiatives have weakened environmental regulations. Some environmental and climate activists have fled the country for fear that the government might start arresting them. 
Over in Europe, the EU's 52 countries have agreed to finally update the 1994 Energy Charter Treaty that allows foreign stakeholders to sue countries that harm their investments. I talked about this before on the June 22nd episode because five young people launched a legal action in the European court to get rid of this treaty because fossil fuel stakeholders take advantage of it to stop countries from closing fossil fuel projects as they try to decarbonize. After it was announced, 76 scientists told EU countries to modernize the charter because it, quote, jeopardized the EU climate neutrality target and the EU Green Deal. So the EU countries and the UK did agree to reduce protections for fossil fuel companies that use the treaty, but this exemption is non-binding and it doesn't come into effect until at least 2033. It also doesn't include other countries outside of the EU that subscribe to the treaty like Japan, Switzerland, and Central Asian countries. Considering we need to see major decarbonization efforts this decade, this treaty ratification is way too little too late. Meanwhile, Germany is trying to back out of the agreement to stop funding offshore fossil fuel projects during the G7 meeting. This would be a huge climate setback, and I'll let you know if anything comes from this. Over in the UK, it was understood that the EDF Hinkley Point B nuclear plant would not have its life extended past August for financial reasons presented by the company, despite the energy crisis. Well, it's come out that actually the UK government's energy minister never even contacted the French company to ask it to extend the plant's life. The plant provides clean power for more than 1.7 million people, and now it's too late to postpone the closure. And the U.S. has not improved its leaky methane gas pipelines, according to a new study by the U.S. Purge Education, the Environment America Research and Policy Center, and the Frontier Group. Methane is 84 times a more potent greenhouse gas than CO2 for the first 20 years they're in the atmosphere. On average, a new leak incident is reported to the federal government every 40 hours. And those are just major leaks, as many minor leaks go undetected or unreported. Over 2,600 hazardous gas pipeline leaks have caused more than $4 billion in damages in emergency services, killed 122 people, and released 26.6 billion cubic feet of fuel as methane or carbon dioxide this past decade. The amount of explosions and leaks really haven't decreased during this time either. These incidents were caused by everything from operator errors to equipment failures to extreme weather events. A billion dollars in the infrastructure bill was allocated towards fixing leaks. And we move on to a piece of chemical news. A well run by Nigeria's Irritan Exploration and Production Limited has now spilled crude oil and gas into the Niger Delta for over a week. The company, which was partially owned by Shell, says it's due to a leak caused by vandalism and the wellhead platform was removed, making it harder to stop the leak. Leaks like this are unfortunately really common in that area. I want to end today's episode mentioning that we are in the middle of London's Climate Action Week. It began on June 25th and will go until July 3rd. This annual event was founded in 2019, though I'm not sure if it took place the last two years due to the pandemic. It's hosted by the Third Generation Environmentalism Limited, or E3G. This year's themes are Green, Fair, and Resilient Transitions, The Road to COP27 for Ambition and Adaptation, Creating a Sustainable Net Zero London, and Whole of Society Climate Mobilization. And that was your climate news for Tuesday, June 28th. 
If you like the work I do, please follow this podcast, give it a five-star rating, leave a review, and consider checking out the Beckosphere Climate Corner YouTube channel. I also have a Patreon. Remember to talk about the climate crisis every single day and to support your local news organizations. Bye for now.